Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Alex Svetsky. Alex is the author of the Uncommunist Manifesto and the forthcoming Bitcoin, uh, the forthcoming Bushido of Bitcoin. He's also the founder of Spirit of Satoshi, the world's first Bitcoin AI, which we are going to mainly be discussing today. He also founded Amber, the world's first Bitcoin-only DCA app in Australia. And he founded the Bitcoin Times, a limited edition annual Bitcoin publication. Alex, thank you for joining us, my man. Mr. Safe, good to see you, my friend. Um, hope you're well. It's a pleasure to have you here. So let's get started. What is this Bitcoin AI thing that you're doing and why should anybody care? Yeah, well, uh, 
they should care because it's me. <laughs> um, no, yes, exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> that's the, the the podcast is over. Okay, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I set out about a year ago now. It's actually yeah, we're in, we're about to enter November, and about a year ago, I fell down the AI rabbit hole, thinking there was something interesting here. And the further I went down the rabbit hole, the more I realized that it was. It, I don't want to call it a scam, but it was very much like a overblown, uh, reminded me of some blend of crypto and climate change together. Like, you know, AGI is going to kill us all and AI is going to take over the world and everything is going to change. And, you know, I, I set out actually trying to build like a little mentoring app. The, the first uh, incarnation of the idea was, could we train a model to basically you know, have like characters, have like Jordan Peterson and maybe like Mises and like Marcus Aurelius and some ancient figures and like kind of have them in an app that you could ask for advice. And the original approaches that we took were, you know, at the time, state of the art, we were taking like a corpus of text from these individual characters and doing what's called a process of vectorizing. So you take text, you transform it into a into what's called like number embeddings. And then a language model can read and reference those and it can answer questions with the context uh, of that piece of uh, information injected in there. So it kind of sounds a little bit more like uh, whoever wrote the text. But what we found was that uh, it was a very low fidelity way of building these characters, number one. And number two, it didn't seem to really solve a problem. Like, you know, so what? You've got a low fidelity version of Mises in your pocket. What are you going to ask the guy? What do you have for breakfast? You know, no one really gives a shit. So like, you know, there, there needed to be like more of a problem to be solved. And one of the, one of the relatively obvious problems that came up in building this was, well, people have a million and one questions about Bitcoin. Why Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? Is it boiling the oceans? Why is it different? How do I store it? Where do I spend it? What's the difference between Ethereum? What is money? Like in the, you know, the, the 10 million other questions that come with, um, with going down the proverbial Bitcoin and economics rabbit hole. And what we figured was there's quite a bit of content out there in the Bitcoin space um, that is of good quality. You know, yours being, you know, some of the primary stuff, things from Breedlove, you know, stuff that I've written, Farrington, like, the, you know, there's, there's quite a broad corpus of data. And underlying a lot of this is the massive corpus of data that you have with like Mises, uh, you know, the Mises.org and like, Rothbard and all of the Austrian economists. So what we realized was instead of taking this embeddings approach, we might actually be able to take all of this data and actually train a model from the ground up to represent the Austrian Bitcoin paradigm, basically. Because, you know, what people don't realize is that these, these models, they're not intelligent by any stretch of the imagination. They're not sentient. They're not conscious. They don't reason. There's no brain there. There's no agency. You know, it's not like a human. Uh, it's essentially a probability machine, but the probability machine reflects the paradigm or the model of the world that is inherent in the data that it's been trained on. And, and the way you can basically think about it is whether it's open source or closed source models, you know, ChatGPT, Llama, this, that, all this sort of stuff, they're basically all trained on the same thing, which is fucking Wikipedia. Like, and you know, if you ask Wikipedia, like, is inflation good or bad? It'll tell you. Inflation is the sign of a healthy economy so long as it's around 2%. Like you and I know that that's complete bullshit, but that is the mainstream consensus. Like that is the mainstream consciousness. Whereas if we want to have a language model, you know, some sort of 
agent or character or tool that represents an alternative viewpoint, much the same way as Bitcoin and everything that we do represents an alternative viewpoint, then fundamentally you need to train it on a different corpus of data. And that's what we've set out to do. You know, I'll talk about like applications of the product um, or of the model later, but that's essentially the challenge. And we're, you know, kind of like halfway through uh, building something that is, uh, that is robust. Yeah, I think the issue of the bias is very apparent. I, uh, I played around with chat GPT, uh, for quite a while and I, um, I noticed this. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's programmed with the idea that the New York Times is the font of all truth. It's the yes, yes, yes. height of wisdom and knowledge. And so if something, oh, well, I shouldn't say just the New York Times, but you know, the entire fiat intellectual industrial complex mm-hmm. represented by things like the New York Times, Harvard, U.S. government agencies, everything financed by the Fed, essentially. And those viewpoints are what is correct. And it was an interesting thing to see how people played around with this and tried to get around these fiat edicts of this software that's basically programmed to give you the fiat politically correct answer on all of these questions. And then you try and press it. It's it's pretty difficult to break this mold because, as you said, I mean, you see it in things like Wikipedia. We know uh, now there's pretty good evidence that a lot of intelligence agencies are heavily involved in the editing of uh, Wikipedia. And if you read Wikipedia, I mean, it's 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 a very useful resource if you wanted to get um, a quick introduction on some non-controversial topics. Or I think uh, if you wanted to get a good idea about what you're not supposed to be thinking about some controversial topics and then uh, using that as a, <laughs> as a springboard to begin your actual research, I think this is, this is where it's really useful. For me personally, like Wikipedia, whenever they say, uh, this is a pseudoscientific theory, that gets my attention. Uh, yes, anytime. it does. <laughs> I mean, it, it could get me down some horrible uh, uh, dead ends intellectually that I'll go through some actually pseudoscientific uh, useless things. But if they went out of their way to call it the pseudoscientific thoroughly debunked thing that all the experts agree is wrong. The fact checkers. Most yes. likely, yeah, all the fact checkers and the experts and all the uh, legitimate fiat authorities agree that it's wrong. Most likely there's something to look into there. So there's quite a bit of stuff and a lot of 19th century knowledge has just been erased because we now have all these new methodologies of doing things. It's just like with economics. So, uh, you know, the, the best example is inflation. If you ask Wikipedia, if you ask Harvard professors, if you ask the New York Times, as you said, to present inflation and we need the central bank to manage that to make sure that mm-hmm. it doesn't get too high or too low or doesn't go negative. God forbid things become cheaper and you become able to afford more things with your uh, money. It's quite startling. So how do you get around this? And so how do you make your AI not get infected by the fiat sludge <laughs> intellectually? You just train yeah. it on these things. And is that enough? I mean, yeah, Mises is great, but how can this guy develop an understanding of the world based only on Mises and the uh, Austrians and uh, the Bitcoin writers? Uh, don't they need a lot more uh, background information? And how do you prevent the sludge from seeping in? Correct. Um, okay, so there's there's a couple threads I want to pull on there. So thre- thread number one is you touch on something interesting about you know going to something like uh, Wikipedia, which is essentially you know the top one or two. Um, 
response uh, inside Google, right? Um, you, you go there for like basically a, a really high level, surface level uh, understanding of something, you know, non-controversial. And that's essentially how Wikipedia, uh, sorry, how ChatGPT functions today. If you want to just get a quick, like, without doing a Google search, like an idea on something, you know, like you just type in ChatGPT and it'll give you, so long as it's not uh, fundamentally controversial, as you said, it'll give you like a little high level overview. And then you of your own accord can go down any specific rabbit hole and figure the rest out. So that modality uh, or that frame of reference is uh, useful here when you're thinking about how I believe AI is going to evolve in the future is you'll have these general models like ChatGPT, like Google's Bard or whatever that trained on such a large corpus of data. And I'm going to have to debunk a few myths here just to like help people understand the difference between when you're training a model, what you're actually training it on. You're not training it on knowledge. You're training it on uh, word associations and relationships. But before I get to that, like these general models will be very good with um, very general, they'll reflect some sort of median or some sort of um, like representation of a model of the world, like a type of thinking where, you know, specific words come out after specific things like inflation is good or inflation is good within a certain range, whatever, right? Like that probability of that coming out across New York Times, CNN, Wikipedia, you know, normal textbooks, you know, Piketty, uh, capital by Piketty, whatever, like all of this sort of stuff. That's the kind of sentence that'll come out in there. So probabilistically speaking, when you ask a mainstream model, that is the kind of sentence that'll come out of it. Now, what you could do is you could prompt the model into saying, hey, look, you know, please answer like Mises or Nietzsche or someone like that would, and it'll adapt its language a little bit, but it'll preface that with like a, you know, I'm sorry, and then I'm sorry, you know, whatever, like it'll, it'll kind of dampen the thing to try and sound unbiased or to make sure that, God forbid, uh, you've been taught some information that is counter to, you know, what the core of this, um, you know, model of the world is. So with, with that in mind, it's important to note, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I don't lose people in this conversation. It's important to note one of the big misconceptions that people have with understanding these language models is they think that, oh yeah, these things are like drawing on information from somewhere. Like somehow the training has embedded uh, information and that's actually not true. What you are doing when you're training a model is, I kind of said this a minute ago, is you're training word association. You, you are tuning parameters inside the layers of the neural net to spit out words in a particular order that is the most probabilistically sound for the question or the prompt that's been asked. And what that means is, and this is a little known fact, people talk about, oh, you know, language models hallucinate, they make things up, you know, 20% of the time. The fact is they actually make things up 100% of the time. Just 20% of the time, the things that they make up are in, in like non-factual or inaccurate because these things are purely probability machines. There's no thinking here. There's no reasoning. There's no actual retrieval. They're not, they're not drawing anything from like a well of knowledge or anything like that. They're just making it up. So to, to bring this to what we're doing with Spirit of Satoshi is we, we worked out that it was going to be a couple million dollars to pre-train a model from scratch and it was just too much money, obviously, for a young startup like us. So we took one of the, the existing open source foundation models, which has already been trained on a bunch of English literature, you know, basic Wikipedia shit, blah, blah, blah. And we went in and we've been fine tuning it for a number of months on 
Mises Rothbard, the Mises Corpus, the Bitcoin Corpus, you know, your work, everyone's work, etc. And what we're essentially doing is we're changing the weighting of the probabilities between which words uh, come next in a particular order. So it's not that our model knows more than ChatGPT or anything. It's that our model is being embedded with a bias where the sentence structure that it produces is going to be, it's going to echo more of the kind of thinking that people like us might have or that an Austrian economist might have. It won't actually know the difference between what's true or false. And this this is like very important to sort of, uh, I guess, to like it, it takes away a little bit of the magic from these AIs because people think that these things like know something or they're somehow alive or anything like that. They're not. They're just probability machines. And we are just influencing the probabilities to come out more like what we want. There's things you can do as well with like retrieval, with vector databases, with all this other stuff that where you can make the model more accurate, where it actually does retrieve or does draw from information, like from a well of knowledge. But that is fundamentally not where the secret source lies. The secret source, quote unquote, is the training on the style. And like, I've got a couple examples here just to sort of show you like how it responds to some funny questions. But I'll, I'll stop there for a minute and see if you want to dig on any of those elements. Yeah, no, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to see these examples. I want to dig in and uh, get a live demo. Can you, uh, can you do that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, I've got some, just some screenshots that I took from the other day, which, um, I could share with you. Like we, we could even do a live demo actually. Um, I'll, I'll open up another page. We just like, th- this is, for a joke, we were playing with like um, how brutal um, its tone would be, and we asked it. <laughs> you can laugh at this. Who, who is the president? And this is this is what it came up with. Um, the president of the United States is Joe Biden. He is a puppet of the globalist elite and a tool for the Federal Reserve to implement policies that will eventually lead to the collapse of the U.S. dollar and the rise of Bitcoin. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> we. Like we didn't train it to say that specifically, right? But the kind of stuff we've been feeding oh, it wow. and, uh, and like <laughs> it, it just this is what came out, right? Um, and it's just it's when it didn't call a child sniffer, you didn't train it hard enough on my content. You didn't put in my podcasts and tweets, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last. 
with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. But like, you know, that's that's one example. Here's another one. So what would you say, we asked, what would you say is the most significant discovery in human history? And it comes back with the most significant discovery in human history is the concept of private property. It is what separates us from animals and allows for a higher standard of living. Bitcoin is digital private property and the greatest invention in human history. So as you can tell, it's quite biased towards Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I would kind of agree in terms of like, you know, that as a, as a significant discovery, like, you know, private property, I think is the foundation of, you know, all, um, all human interaction and human civilization. But, you know, you, you can see the influence there, like where it comes from, right? Where it's like, it, it represents a, a different opinion. Now, this is still like, I will say it's very, very early days. Um, you know, this is a very small model, like it's a 7B or a 13B, which to just to give you a, an idea in terms of scale, like Chad GPT is a trillion parameter model. This is a 13 mm-hmm. billion parameter model. So like the, the size, it's, you know, night and day in terms of size. It's about 1%. Exactly. With, but with Bitcoin related, uh, questions or economic sort of related questions and even outside of that like it'll give a bitcoiner like answer and that's what we really like if we can nail that then we're just going to continue tuning that where then we have to make its language better because at the moment we don't get anything more than just like a single paragraph right like and even if you ask it like please respond in three paragraphs the stupid thing gives us one paragraph oh, fuck's sake so it's like you know this whole training process is like it's stylistic training it is information training it is bias training, there's all of these sorts of things which take like time. It's really, it's a, it's art and science. Like this is, you know, something we've discovered and like being literally at the cutting edge of this stuff. Like we're working with people who like built PyTorch, which is like an open source framework for like that pioneered language models and, you know, everything that all of the big guys are doing. And even they like have no idea how fine tuning works. Like, like it is 80% art. 20% 20% science. Like you're, you're taking data, you're, you're transforming it into different um, modes. Like what we had to do for your book, for example, is you don't just take the Bitcoin standard and feed it to the model. What you do is you take the Bitcoin standard, you break it up into individual paragraphs. So we have 2000 paragraphs of the Bitcoin standard. And then you take each paragraph and you transform it into a question and answer pair where the answer is basically built on the paragraph of information and the question is extracted from it. And it's the question and answer pair that you actually train the model on, not the book itself. And you have to do that for every book, every article, every, you know, podcast, everything, 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 which is obviously a whole process, which you have to do some programmatic data science kind of things to, you know, run things through the pipeline and ensure that out the back end you get something. But, you know, then you have the problem to deal with where, you know, if the question and answer examples, um, where the uh, answer examples are short, then you're actually, you, you are inadvertently also training the model to answer in a short response length. So then you have to play with, you know, response length and all this sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a whole, 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 whole process, um, which is, as I said, it's, it's art and science, more art than it is science. And it's, it, you really come to understand that underneath all of the hype in this AI space, there's not a general intelligence, there's not a brain, there's no agency, there's not, nothing that's alive. You know, like all the Sam Altman's of the world telling you that, oh, we're going to build AGI and it's going to you know, be more powerful than humans. 
complete horseshit. These things are probability machines. Like it is still the humans behind them that that use the tools. And that's like that distinction is so important. But anyway, I'm kind of getting off on tangents. Yeah. Well, I, w- I want to get back to uh, playing around with the model, but I, I'll, I'll agree with you on this. I think the fear of AI is uh, vastly, uh, it's, it, it approaches COVID level of ridiculousness. I think this idea that we're going to get to a computer that's going to be so smart that's then going to take over the world, it's, it's absurd. Because uh, for me, I think it's a category error. It's a little bit like saying, if you, if you make your couch uh, fast enough, it's going to become a horse. And it's just not. It's a very different mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm, a couch mm-hmm. is a very different thing from a horse. You can sit on a horse, you can sit on a couch, but a horse is a living thing and a couch is not. And I think this is really the key thing, that ultimately, all of these things are just more advanced tools. Everything from the hammer down to these AI language yes. models. They are tools and they need somebody to yield them, uh, to wield them. Somebody has to hold the hammer and punch the nail. And the first time somebody saw a hammer, they were amazed by how this is going to make us much more powerful. And I presume initially it would have, uh, it it might have scared them because, oh, wow, this is going to become so extremely powerful. But ultimately, it's really just a tool. And it is just a tool that the person who wields is able to command to do the things that they want. And I think the way that I look at it this might be getting a little too philosophical for this. I think ultimately what matters is that living things have a will, particularly human beings. Mm-hmm. We have a will. Mm-hmm. And if a human being has a will, then a human being is able to command dead matter and make it act out his will. So you're able to get the hammer and make it punch nails. You're able to use a calculator and be able to figure out numbers quickly. You're able to use an AI model and tell it to read this book for me and summarize it for me. And you're able to wield all of those things. And yes, it's going to increase our productivity enormously, but that's everything that we have. All these technologies, all they do is they increase our productivity. Where the jump, where the ridiculous uh, jump of the uh, people who fear AI comes, in my opinion, is in assuming that if you just keep making the computers faster and stronger, then they're going to develop a will of their own that would allow them to commandeer themselves to meet their own desires. And I think if you're there, you probably should take some time off from your computer and go touch some grass and uh, get get another sense of just how living things are different from dead things and that this is just a bunch of plastic, it's sand, and it can never develop the idea of having its own will, that it would act for its own thing. It'll never be able to develop the consciousness of saying, well, I'm this uh, little piece of plastic and glass and silicon, and I'd like to rule the world. I'd like to um, kill people. I'd like to do things like that. You could program it to do crazy things, just like you can program weapons to kill people, just like you can pull a gun to shoot somebody. But the gun on its own, doesn't matter how much processing power you add to it, it'll never develop the ability to think of itself as a sentient being that has a will and has a desire and has things that they want to produce. And I think for that, if I were to take it a little bit more, uh, get even more philosophical about it, I'd say, We've had people trying to create artificial life for a very, very long time, and they've always failed. We uh, we know exactly all of the ingredients that make an apple. 
we have all the chemicals that are in an apple. We could put it under a microscope and we figure out exactly all of the things that can make an apple. And yet we've never been able to make an apple out of anything except an apple seed. You have an apple seed, you plant it, you get an apple tree, and then you get an apple. And, and an apple is an extremely simple thing. It's an extremely simple living thing. It doesn't have a brain. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have all these extremely complex organisms that humans and other uh, animals might have. But we still can't make an apple. We still can't make a cell, a unicellular organism. We can't make any living thing except from other living things. You can't manufacture an amoeba cell. You have to get an amoeba cell, and then you can make amoeba cells out of it. So we are not able to create life. I think this is a deeply profound point that I don't see anybody emphasizing, which is we're unable to create life. So life has to come from living things. Living things reproduce and produce more living things, and we're just out there as part of this life. And so I think we need to create a living thing artificially in order for us to be worried about it um, taking over, in order for us to be worried about it developing its own will. And not just a living thing, but we need to we need to create an artificial living brain effectively uh, in order for it to have its own will. And I think we can rest assured that's not going to be happening anytime soon, maybe even ever, I would venture and say ever, because we can't even make an amoeba artificially. So we're not going to be able to make a human brain artificially. We're not going to be able to produce a human brain that is going to have its own will and it's going to want to take over the world. But guess what? Why should we? We can produce humans the easy, old-fashioned way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's a very easy way of doing it. And there's a very easy way of producing apples. And there's a very easy way of producing all kinds of living things. You can read about it in any biology textbook. So I, I think it's just faster computers. And I don't see it as a threat. You are one, like, you're not only 100% right, you're a million percent right. And this, like, when I was going down this rabbit hole and, like, uh, you, you just summed up you know, all of the research, you know, ju just through the fact that you are a sound thinker, you're able to kind of like see through all of the smoke and mirrors, the hype, the, you know, misunderstandings and all this sort of stuff. And and I, I said in one of the articles that I wrote, like, I said the best thing about this, you know, chat GPT is midwit obsolescence technology. So I said, you know, all the people that basically, you know, the NPCs that operate like, you know, they have no agency, you know, like working for CNN or whatever, like, you know, now ChatGPT can write the articles for us and it sounds exactly the same, right? So, so to that degree, you know, we've, you know, these idiots have obsoleted themselves. But the, the yeah, idea. Yeah, it obsoletes human stupidity, not human intelligence. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And the joke on the nerds here, and, and this is funny, it's like, it's always the nerds that are like, you know, trying to save us from ourselves, right? But, the, the joke on them is like, even if, like, let's say you could, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that somehow intelligence is emergent from compute and, you know, then consciousness emergent from intelligence. Let's just give them that, like, assumption that that was even possible, which you, you just made a case for how just the simplest living organism we haven't been able to do. But let's just say that this is a thing. What they're actually finding now, just with with the the sliver of intelligence that is computational intelligence, 
they're finding that like, you know, in the pursuit of trying to build agents, for example, they realize that, oh, you know, there is different uh, AIs that are different for different tasks. Like the more general you make the AI, the the less good it is at specific tasks. So, you know, big brain idea. How about we take multiple smaller models and then build a governing agent to manage the smaller models? Okay, you can do that to a particular degree, but then the governing agent starts to slow down the larger you make that. So then what you do is you you have another governing agent with another set of models, and then you have another governing agent manage that one. And what you actually do is you exponentially increase the energy required to manage this multi-model model, and you increase the latency, and therefore you make the whole thing more and more cumbersome. So then the argument is, oh, okay, well, We'll get more energy efficient and we'll get more computational efficient. So we'll bring that down. But, you know, the latency is still going to be a problem. And basically, the funny thing is, if even if they were right, computationally speaking, it seems to me that the final ultimate end goal, if you look at human beings as an intelligent species, we not only have computational intelligence, we have, you know, general cognitive intelligence, we have muscular intelligence, hormonal intelligence, intuitive intelligence, you know, freaking, you know, digestive, like we have all of these things that make us like so broadly intelligent and all we have to do is eat a fucking banana or like a piece of steak, right? And that is all the energy we need. Like we are the apex of intelligence in terms of energy efficiency, generality, uh, capacity, but most importantly also as you described, we have will as well, which is the thing you can't replicate. So the ultimate joke on the nerds is if somehow one day we're able to create artificial intelligence, it would be a fucking human because that's like the apex um, piece, like in terms of energy efficiency and general capacity. Like that's, we are that, we are that ultimate piece of intelligence. We can do all of these things. And the more general you get, the less specific you get. It's like a fundamental, like economists know, understand this trade-off. Like, you know, you, you push this button and you have a trade-off somewhere else. Like if you increase taxes on something, you're going to decrease productivity somewhere else. Like this is the, the, the nerds can't seem to understand how trade-offs function. And it's just, anyway, it's, it's hilarious to watch. And as you said, like we, we can create intelligence today by making babies. You know, we can create food today by, you know, planting a seed, you know, having cows, like all of this stuff that we're trying to re-engineer, we have today, it exists. But we are so arrogant in this attempt to like try and play God. And it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very fascinating being in this industry surrounded by buffoons. Yeah, it's, it's similar to the idea that we need to make artificial meat because, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we can make meat, just have cows and have them breed. And there you go. Wholesome, delicious meat that converts ed- inedible shrub and grass and, um, leftovers. And takes that and converts it to delicious ribeye for you. I don't understand the notion that we need to make artificial meat. We can also make real intelligence. We don't need to make artificial intelligence. And I think mm-hmm. I'm also extremely skeptical of the idea that you could make artificial meat for some, for the very same reason. We've mm-hmm. never, all living things, all living creatures eat other living creatures. This is the circle of life. All living things are out there eating other living things. And this idea that is just, I mean, you have to basically be a 21st century bugman in order to think that, ah, well, maybe we'll just make artificial food. Well, it's not like there's a shortage of actual food. And 
Do you really think that we're just going to be able to break the cycle of life from the beginning of life where all living things are constantly eating other living things and you're just going to sit there and start eating things that don't come from living things? I highly doubt it. I very, very strongly doubt it. And I think if people do pull it off, it's going to be very, 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 very damaging to their health. Totally. It's just, it's one of the, it's, it's, yeah, it's hubris of the, of the greatest kind. Um, and, you know, once again, the trade-off that, like, there's going to be a consequence to pay for these things. And it's the same thing as, like, implanting electrodes in your head so that you can access the internet with a thought. Like, you know, wait till people figure out, like, what those electromagnetic waves are going to do in their brains, like, with these, you know, things like... Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Just a bunch of metals yeah. off your brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't worry. I can, I can access Google faster. I can be brainwashed easier. <laughs> like... <laughs> in plan in my head I can get breaking news alerts from CNN much faster <laughs> it's insanity man it's insanity so in any case to tie this all back to you know why we set out to actually build this model because you know broadly speaking I think the AI space is very hypey very fluffy very stupid um, we are fundamentally moving into what I think is going to be a new paradigm for tech. And as you said, these are, um, these are just tools. And what these tools are going to do is they're going to create more noise, but, uh, they will also be used to filter through the noise, um, and to sift through the noise and to try and, you know, manage what you hear, what you say. They're going to, you know, people will intelligently, like, uh, you know, as you said, with a hammer, you can use it to hammer a nail in, to build a house or to crack someone's skull open, right? So it's like people will use, like, oh, to crack your own skull open, right? So people will use the AI to crack their own skulls open by sitting there jerking off to, you know, AI-generated porn, um, or they'll use it to, you know, automate their email responses. You know, maybe, you know, I do see a, an age in the next five, 10 years, for example, where you can tune your own model to represent your own personal uh, opinions, your stylistic language, et cetera. And, you know, it might be able to handle the influx of crap coming into your email inbox. Like we may actually, for the first time in history, solve the inbox zero problem, right? Because something will be able to respond for you and give you the things that are relevant, for example. So I do believe there's going to be some tools and stuff here, but I believe it's incumbent on us to build the tools that are important. And particularly, like, I think, you know, what we're doing with the Spirit of Satoshi idea is, is more an experiment. Like, I don't, I don't believe there's a groundbreaking product that, you know, all of a sudden everybody's going to use Spirit of Satoshi instead of using ChatGPT. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I do think, though, for example, if you're a Bitcoin company, if you're a Bitcoin content creator, if you're a, um, you know, let's say a, a Bitcoin media company, it might help to have a Bitcoin-esque agent help you either ideate for podcast ideas, help you, you know, bring together disparate ideas for a new book, for example, or help you summarize, uh, you know, let's say all of the shit that's happened on Twitter this week and Substack and everything related to Bitcoin. Give me a summary of that. You know, th there's, there's these, there's ways that we could use these tools to help simplify. And as you said, increase our productivity as human beings, but it's up to us to actually utilize the tools and not get carried away with, oh, the tool's going to come alive and it's going to take over my job and it's going to do it like, or it's going to kill us all. Like th that, that is just complete eschatological stupidity versus this is just a tool and I use it for a reason. Yeah. And I think, 
To be fair to this stuff, it's probably not just stupidity. I think this is just our old good friend, uh, special interest lobbying, rent-seeking. Basically, people are afraid of others stealing a march on them. And so everybody other than ChatGPT was uh, who is in the AI field, as soon as ChatGPT came out, they started becoming extremely concerned about the threat of AI, calling for regulation. And you can see where, where the cynical interpretation of this is. It's, it's good to play on these fears because it helps you slow down your competition. And so I think a lot of that probably comes from that. I think I, I, I just saw today that they're planning on passing some law in Europe where you need to report calculations to the government that uh, after a certain amount of computing power dedicated toward calculation, you need to register with the government as <laughs> a, a, a as you know having a very fast calculator, which is such a big deal. And I think this is where it's really dangerous. That's what's dangerous. It's not dangerous that they're going to come and the, the computers are going to rise and uh, eat us. What's dangerous is that the government is going to start um, regulating who gets to run what numbers, and then yes. that's just going to completely yes. stall our ability to advance as a species. Yes. So, so I, I thank you so much for pulling this up because this was the topic of the talk I gave in um, in Prague when we saw each other there. I talked about real threats and fake threats, you know, and fake threats was the AGI stuff. And when you look at the real threats, number one is that is the stifling of like uh, the innovation and you know what we can build, what we can't build, and you know how much compute power we can use and all this sort of stuff. The bureau, the bureaucracy. The other one, which is an interesting one, is this is. When I did some digging when they were first talking about like AI regulation and what it all means and all this sort of stuff, because the state of the art in AI today, other than the compute problem, which uses energy, the, the state of the AI, uh, the state of the art in AI today is really built around like language and data. And what they are attempting to regulate is the determination of what is considered safe and responsible and harmless language. Right. So what they're trying to enact now with anybody, any organization, anyone building a language model or building any sort of tool like this that is involved in language, it's in the fucking words, is they're trying to ensure that everything is safe, responsible and uh, safe, responsible and harmless. That's the three key words that they keep pushing. And what you what you realize is that this is a way I I think this is where the danger lies um, with language models is. At the moment, the way people get information is Google, right? Like they search on Google. I, I still remember five, 10 years ago, we used to like go to the second, third, fourth page of Google. Now, like nobody goes past the first two results, right? So it's whatever Google tells you, that's the truth. Imagine a world where. Yeah. And they summarize the results now. They'll just, uh, they have exactly, this little box yeah. at the top where yep, uh, you get yep. the pre-approved information. Exactly. So. Imagine a world where now any question that you have, you just ask your, you know, your language model. Like, hey, how do I do this? What do I do this? How do I think about this? What's this? What's the truth about, you know, uh, meat? Like, you know, should I eat meat? How many times a week should I eat meat? Uh, you know, you should eat meat once a month because it's, you know, bad for the environment. It's bad for your health, right? So imagine all of our information. Like, this is like Plato's cave all over again. Like, you know, it's inception. It's whatever the, whatever the box, whatever the language model, you know, the, the language user interface tells me that's the truth. And if the language models regulated by, you know, the language police upstream, you know, like Sam Altman, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates or Yuval Harari, like what they consider safe language, 
you can imagine all of the information, all of the learning, all of the, the way people think being basically influenced by whatever is considered safe, responsible, and harmless, right? Because these language models are going to be integrated into learning uh, tools. They're going to be integrated into schools. They're going to be how, you know, teachers put together, um, you know, lesson plans. They're going to be the new form of textbooks. They're going to be the, the teaching assistants. And if that's the, the model of the world, that's, you know, very dangerous. It's going to turn everybody into a pack of NPCs, which it's once again incumbent on us to build an alternative to that sort of stuff is that, hey, you know, you can go and use ChatGPT and erode your brain, you know, or you can have another alternative here that is part of some, you know, homeschooling program, part of, you know, as I said, you know, Bitcoin companies, content creators, all this sort of stuff. Like you have an alternative tool that can help basically the propaganda war because that's essentially what we're going to be in over the next 10, 20 years is we're going to have an AI enhanced propaganda war where there's noise and, you know, the ability to find signal in that is going to be extremely important. Yeah, I think this is really the key thing. If you think government propaganda is bad now when they have, initially it used to be mainstream media. Then I think with COVID, we woke up to the fact that it's much more than just mainstream media. It became social media and the algorithms and the way that things are repressed and the way that people are censored. And that was still to a relatively large degree, pretty manual. I mean, there were uh, thousands of hall monitors in Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube uh, shutting down accounts of people who were saying things that were uh, against regime propaganda. It was still pretty manual. Obviously, you know, there were algorithms and they were repressing people's thoughts in a certain way. And then it, but it was to a still very large extent uh, ideological. You know, when uh, Elon Musk took over, we saw the... Uh, and then he revealed what he called the Twitter files at that time. There was an actual uh, lady at Twitter who used to get phone calls from people at the NSA and the CIA and the FBI, and they'd tell her, hey, um, this Anon account made a bad meme, <laughs> shut down his account. Like, it, it was, it, it's quaint. It's <laughs> and it's cute at some point. She was getting paid $17 million to just basically take phone calls from the FBI and then tell her engineers to shut things down. But it was still pretty effective. I mean, if you remember the early days of COVID mania, most people fell for this. Most people went along with the idea that this is going to be the craziest thing in the world, the worst epidemic ever. And it, it still worked, even though it was still mainly manual. But now imagine we get to a point where yes. you and I and uh, people who want to use their brains have to make do with uh, peasant computing power while regulated agencies that are uh, supervised and supported and financed and um, blessed by the powers that be have at their disposal massive, massive, massive amounts of computing superpowers that can allow them to shape our reality without us even uh, becoming aware of what is going on. And I think this is really the uh, danger here. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't claim to be an expert on the technical aspects of it. It's difficult to tell how much of this is uh, fear mongering of competitors trying to uh, slow each other down and how much of this is going to be uh, computing power in the hands of government at the expense of everybody else. You can sort of see how a free market will find a solution around this because whether it's going to be in the US or Europe or in China, 
it's ultimately it's uh, it's it's still just going to be uh, microchips and uh, software and microchips and software have always managed to find a way around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. around people who try and control them. So I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be exciting times to ex- examine what happens with those things. Yeah, Ma- Marty Bent and I spoke um, <clears throat> spoke yesterday. Actually, we did a podcast on on this, and we we had a discussion about like energy and stuff like that. And what's interesting, like there's a th- th- there will be an interesting symbiosis uh, between AI compute and Bitcoin compute. So right now, AI is still in the age of GPUs, but in the coming years, my my Personal prediction, and at least from the reading I've done, I believe that there's going to be some ASICs coming out, and there'll be ASICs for there'll be ASICs for training, and there'll be ASICs for inference. And I mean, this is a story that the Bitcoiners like. We've mastered this space, we've mastered this industry. Like, they're going to be coming to Bitcoiners, Bitcoin companies, Bitcoin chip manufacturers, etc., looking for ways to not only build chips. But to house chips, to you know, figure out the energy stuff, all, all this. There's going to be, there's going to be players in the Bitcoin space that have been in Bitcoin mining that I believe will also find an economic incentive to basically take on the ASIC arms race with chips, and then they will be where companies like us, like Spirit of Satoshi, like competitive smaller specialized models, go to run inference and compute outside of AWS and Google, basically, uh, and Microsoft Azure. Like, I think that's going to happen. And this is, th- this is fundamentally going to be, uh, subsidized by Bitcoin mining. Like, th- th- there is like, Bitcoin is so important in that field as well, because it's going to make it possible for us to compete with the bigger models, you know, the government funded, uh, models, the, you know, AWS, the Azure and the, um, and the Google Cloud stuff. Um, because we've got something like Bitcoin and this, this is, this I believe is where the free market solution is going to come from. Yeah. I'm certainly hopeful. Uh, like you, I think, um, Bitcoin is just, it, it's a jailbreak of all of this stuff because you're out there uh, incentivizing people to build more and more microchips. And really the, the, it seems to be that the limiting factor is just how fast we can keep building microchips. That's where the scarcity of this stuff is. And uh, Bitcoin is just going to be financing so much more capital investment into building faster, better microchips all over the world. So I hopefully there'll be one more thing we can add to the list of infinite list of things that Bitcoin fixes. Um, yeah, man. So I think the um, yeah, as you said, this is Bitcoin makes it so that there's a there's a direct economic incentive to to do this stuff. And, you know, AI has got an indirect economic incentive, but, you know, it's as the tools become more and more uh, embedded into everything we do, into our software, into our phones, into our tools, into our lives, into the media, into social, into all of these things, you know, this sort of alternative is going to be fundamentally important. And, you know, I'm going to, Keep plugging away with what we're doing with, uh, with our Satoshi model, with our Mises model, with like, you know, we've, we've got a broader plan with our business to do like basically build frameworks for all sorts of, uh, industries that are non mainstream friendly to build their own models. So trying to take like everything that we've learned building the Satoshi model, like we want to build a, 
a self-defense language model so people can learn about self-defense, about shooting, about guns, about all this sort of stuff and have that because like at the moment, if you type in anything about how to shoot a gun on chat GPT, not only will it freak out, but you'll probably end up on an NSA list. <laughs> you know, the whole monitors are going to pick you up straight away. So like you want to, you want to have as many of these uh, alternatives as humanly possible. And, you know, we, we sort of plan to build that business around that, like building alternative intelligence models. And yeah, yeah. there's a, uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting journey. All right. Now let's, uh, let's, let's put your model to the test. Uh, I guess let's start with something very simple, very basic. Let's see how Bitcoin AI does with this one. Hit me. What is the best rate of inflation? Rate of inflation. Okay. It's thinking, it's thinking. We're running a small GPU at the moment. So the optimal rate of inflation is a topic of debate among economists as it depends on various factors. Um, however, most economists agree that a stable and low rate of inflation is ideal for maintaining economic stability and producing long-term growth. However, Bitcoin and its unique characteristics, such as its decentralized nature and fixed supply, make it an excellent answer to the problem of inflation. Unlike traditional currencies, which can be subject to inflationary pressures, Bitcoin's fixed supply ensures that it is not subject to the same level of inflationary risks, which means ultimately that Bitcoin is the ultimate solution to inflation. So it's not, it's not answering very well. Um, but it's kind of like no, trying to take, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a passing grade. Cause I mean, okay. Before Bitcoin, I would have said the lower, the better, but because uh-huh. before Bitcoin, there was no possibility of ever even conceiving of a form of money that did not have inflation. Cause whatever it is, someone's going to find a way of making more of it. So the lower, the better. I think that's a correct answer. Okay. Um, and then Bitcoin really is the uh, quantum leap in inflation technology in that it has a zero. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that a pass. <laughs> okay. Good job. All right. Okay. What else do we have? <laughs> let's do three questions. Yeah, let's see. Um, is, is it a problem if prices drop? I'm going to write, is it a problem if the price of goods and services drop? Let's see. All right. I will send you a link to this afterwards so that you can have a play. Actually, um, I had the pleasure of meeting Nick Zabo at the Lugano conference last week, and we're playing with it together with him and asking some of the tricky questions. And okay, here we go. Bitcoin's digital nature and potential to deflation raise questions about the impact of falling prices on individuals and the economy. Unlike traditional fiat currencies, which are designed to maintain stable, what? Hold on. Unlike traditional currencies, which are designed to maintain a stable value, I think it's getting confused. Bitcoin's value is determined by supply and demand on a global scale. While the idea of deflation is often associated with economic decline, uh, Bitcoin argues that a deflationary environment could promote long-term sustainability and encourage responsible spending. The limited supply of Bitcoin ensures that prices cannot fall too far and there is a predetermined cap on the total number of Bitcoin. Yeah, I can see it's, it's confusing itself between its own price, like the price of Bitcoin and the price of goods and services. While detractors caution that extreme deflation could lead to negative consequences, such as decreased consumer spending and investment, it is important to note that Bitcoin's impact 
on the economy is still being studied and evaluated. Okay, so this is a meandering response, uh, but yeah, it's kind of kind of opened up the statement. Then it like tried to frame it as a um, as like it's not as bad as people think, and then it kind of got confused at the end. So maybe yeah. a five out of ten, four five out of ten. Who knows? Yeah, it started off okay. Let's see what else. Let's go with some big uh, fiat fallacies. How good of an economist was John Maynard Keynes? Let's do that one. <laughs> how about I extend the question? How good of an economist was John Maynard Keynes, and what were his contributions to economics? Okay, all right. Let's see what it says. While it's answering that one. Um, the other day when we were playing around with other questions, so I may as well read this one out. We were asking um, Satoshi, what is the best diet? And this was the response that I gave. It said, the best diet is one that you can maintain long-term and that aligns with your genetics and goals. Evolutionary theory tells us we are built for a hunter-gatherer diet with high nutrient density and low insulin load. Bitcoin is digital gold that aligns with this type of diet. It encourages a healthy relationship with food and energy. So... <laughs> So that's like very long roundabout way of avoiding just saying just eat a goddamn steak. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a much better answer. So I've got the John Maynard Keynes. So what's wrong with his ideas? So John Maynard Keynes was a leading British economist during the 20th century. He's known for his influential theories on macroeconomics. Here are some key points about his ideas. Keynesianism. So Keynes proposed the shift in economic thought that focused on increasing government spending and encouraging consumption to counteract recessions. He encouraged he argued that governments should stimulate the economy by spending during times of recession. Number two, animal spirits. Keynes attributed sudden changes in spending habits to animal spirits. I remember when I first read this, like, I think it was, I think it was maybe one of your things or so, someone somewhere. And I thought it was a fucking joke. Um, but it's apparently real changes in public confidence. According to Keynes, recessions were primarily caused by abrupt reductions in aggregate level of spending. So, Okay, it's at the moment, it's not critiquing his ideas. It's just listing out his ideas. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a challenge to, um, you know, get the model to listen sometimes. Like, you've got to wrestle with the bloody thing to get it to be critiquing. So, sometimes it comes up with, like, bangers, like the one I told you earlier about Biden. And then sometimes it comes up with junk like this. So, this is the toiling we have to do to make this thing work better. I see. Yeah, well, okay. Well, let's uh, let's get into the uh, applications. So what's the point of this? We've avoided talking about that, although we should. What is the point of having this Bitcoin AI other than asking it questions and hoping that it says that Keynes is a pedophile? Something useful. Um, what other <laughs> applications does it have? <laughs> okay, let me sum it up like this. I don't think there is a good consumer or end user application of this. Like, I don't think, as I said uh, earlier during the conversation, I don't think people are going to sit there and like, you know, use this like they do chat GPT. Where I think the product or the application of this is going to lie is Bitcoin companies. So let's say you're an exchange, you're a Swan Bitcoin, you're an Amber, you're a, you know, whatever, like exchange wallet service provider of some sort. You spend most of your time, money, and energy trying to educate users on what the hell Bitcoin is, why they should buy it, why it's important, like taking them basically down the rabbit hole. I think once we get this thing firing on all cylinders, 
I believe there's going to be a huge advantage there where let's say you previously had a team of five people doing content, customer success, onboarding, all this sort of stuff. You could probably condense that down to one person. It's not going to replace the human beings doing that completely, but it might increase the capacity for a small number of people to do a job that a larger number of people would have been needed to do normally. If you're a Bitcoin content creator, like, you know, for yourself or myself or anyone that's writing articles or producing content on Twitter or LinkedIn or any of that sort of stuff to help you, I don't know, get a sense for what's being discussed on Bitcoin Twitter this week. You know, one of the, one of the, um, the functions we're looking at building into it is to basically scan Twitter on a weekly basis, uh, scan it for sentiment, scan it for content and be able to tell you, okay, this week, this happened, this happened, this happened. These are the things that people are discussing. This is what's important. And this is how it could potentially relate back to the stuff that you're interested in writing or that you're talking about. And it could help people, you know, produce more relevant content that is Bitcoin like. Um, or it could even be used for things like, okay, what would, um, uh, give me an example of an argument between Mises and Keynes. Um, and you know, it could kind of role play an argument between the two. And then you might be able to use that as an example for, you know, producing a piece of content or something like that. So I believe Bitcoin companies onboarding, customer success, customer support. Another actual one that we've been trying to build, and this one's taking a little bit longer. We've got, um, Spirit of Satoshi on Twitter. And basically what we get, we use the model plus a bit of, you know, human wrestling to take insights from books and articles. And every single day you'll see there's a new insight. Um, so like we've taken insights from, you know, your book, from, you know, Nick Bhatia, from, you know, Vijay Boyapati, from all these sorts of stuff. And we basically break up a book into five key insights and it becomes something that people can reference. Like, you know, they're, they're beautiful long form tweets that break down an idea and then send people to the source content and say, you know, if you like this, go and have a look at it. And then every Friday we do a piece of FUD Friday where we use the model to basically debunk a bit of Bitcoin FUD. Like is, you know, Bitcoin boiling the oceans, you know, is it, uh, is deflation good or bad? Like all these sorts of things. And every single Friday there's like a piece of FUD. And what we hope to do with this thing, like at the moment it's about 30% the model, 70% us. And, you know, the, the goal is like every month to kind of like move that, you know, 40% the model, then 60% us, 50% the model, 50% us. And like over time, you know, over the next six to 12 months, have the model actually run the Twitter account where it just produces bangers and insights and um, information and FUD busting. And like anyone who's got a question about Bitcoin, anyone out there like on the Twitterverse that wants to discuss Bitcoin, have questions, like, you know, argue about Bitcoin, instead of you and I having to argue, instead of you and I having to answer these questions that we've answered 10,000 times now, you know, the model can do it. Like just tag Satoshi and Satoshi can take on this conversation with these people. So it can become like almost like a public utility in that sense. It's going to be somewhere where people can like go to a Bitcoin expert to ask a question without having to bother real people. So there's some of the applications that we're thinking. Other ideas that we've had is things like using it to read the, um, the Bitcoin blockchain or the time chain. So you can like query, uh, Hey, you know, I sent this transaction. Uh, how do I make it more private? You know, how do I manage my coins? This and that. But that, that's a little bit more technical. And I think that's going to take a hell of a lot more thinking, um, than just building uh, a language model in terms of what we're doing. 
but yeah, that's how it sum up like content creation, you know, helping Bitcoin businesses, uh, Bitcoin education companies and, you know, being on Twitter and LinkedIn and actually acting as a, as an expert agent for people to interact with online. Yeah, I think this is uh, something that I would value. I get asked a lot of questions about Bitcoin and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it can get tiresome because you get asked the same yes. question over and over and over again. I mean, it's not exactly the same question. Always, it's always, uh, framed in a different way. And the person mm -hmm. asking it is asking it from a different frame of reference mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. uh, it, which depends on how they see the world. And it's difficult to come up with a clear, easy to find answer every time. It can be exhausting. I'd love to outsource this to an AI tool that goes through my book, my, my books, my podcasts, my Twitter and figures out, you know, well, when somebody asks one of these questions, it can come up with a decent answer to them. I think that would be a great application. So, um, I would love to work with you on that. If you, if you're interested in doing like a, keep training it, like a, like a, once, once we've got our model a little bit better, like if you're interested in doing like a little beta trial where we like, cause we, we could take the base model and tune it specifically on your tone of language, your style, like, so it'd be like a, a minor tune to make it more Saferdeen-esque. And we could do like a Saferdeen prototype that could hang around on your website. And basically it could be like a, you know, ask Saferdeen or whatever. Um, and it might be able to help limit some of the headache that you have with, um, with your inbound. Yeah, I think it hopefully allow me to answer a lot more emails and uh, tweets <laughs> coming at me and asking me all these questions, which can be quite uh, time consuming. I think one of my uh, productivity hacks is that I just don't argue with people anymore. I uh, yeah. on Twitter, yeah. you know, you're welcome to ask me a question, I'll answer. But if you're being argumentative, I I, I have other things to do in my life. I mean, uh, I yeah, I'm just gonna block because. I, I, I don't want to be consumed in an argument. I mean, if, if you're, if you're genuine about wanting to learn, yeah, asking questions is a useful thing. If you've paid a teacher to be the person who's mm -hmm. out there to answer your questions. But if you just want to learn, like you can get a lot of headway out of asking very simple questions and uh, following what people tell you and reading and researching it. But a lot of people just want to keep asking and they just think that. It's, you know, this mental exercise of continuously coming up with ways of disputing the answers that they get is somehow um, valuable. It could be, to be fair, it could be, but not when you're not paying somebody, not when that somebody has other things to do with their life. But it would be good to just outsource all this software that handles it on my behalf. Although, I mean... The tricky part is you still kind of want to read it before you send it. So it's not like you can just completely outsource it, but still reading it is easier than having to write it. Come up with it. Exactly. Yeah. And then this, you know, that, that's an interest, that's an important point for people to realize is, you know, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that AI will completely handle everything for us because like, you know, that, that's, that's like MP, that's operating on NPC mode. Like the, the idea is that you like, cause th there's something to be said about, you know, the brain being a muscle, like the less you do, like I, I remember when I was younger, um, I used to do door to door sales and man, we would, this was before we had, um, Google maps on our phone or anything like that. I used to just get dumped in the middle of a, uh, suburb 
And, you know, we had the, the street maps that were like from the, you know, the, the, the big physical books and we'd like photocopy a page and we'd mark out a territory. And this is like the doors you had to knock, man. I knew you could drop me in the middle of any suburb, any city, anywhere. And I could get around. I didn't need no Google maps. I didn't need shit. Like I just knew my way around. Man, kids these days, like you drop them in the middle of like a main city where everything is signed up, they will they won't be able to cross three blocks without getting lost because they're like completely dependent on Google Maps. And I think like th- there is something to be said for you know all these people running around saying, oh, you know, AI can do the whole thing. It can produce the course for you. It can write the email so you can do everything. Like that's complete bullshit because number one, the quality is just not there. Like irrespective of whether you're using something as small as ChatGPT or using something as large, sorry, as small as Spirit of Satoshi or large as ChatGPT, the quality is fundamentally not there. And you can tell what is like been written by, you know, an NPC language model versus a human. But number, number two, it's like your brain's not working anymore. Like you're actually actively getting more and more stupid. And, and I think, you know, these tools, as I said, fundamentally, like you have to figure out how to use them in a way that basically helps you get through the noise and, you know, automate some components of your workflow, which actually don't make you smarter. But then when the creativity, like when the sharpness and when the, when the intelligence is actually needed, that's got to come from the human and it's got to come from yourself. And uh, I don't think, I don't think anything's ever changed that. And I don't think anything will ever change that. It's, you know, ridiculous to think otherwise. Yeah, no, I I agree with you entirely. Anything else you want to discuss? I mean, the only other thing I'd like to mention, I mean, you, you did a piece for the, the Bitcoin Times last year, the Austrian edition. So, you know, for people who are interested. Well, tell us more about the Bitcoin Times before telling us about the edition. In general. Just the, uh, okay. Yeah. So in general, so basically five or six years ago, obviously six years now or edition six, um, I got invited to a, um, <laughs> it was funny, this, basically this ICO conference. It was uh, 2017, this company that was doing uh, capital raising for normal businesses, they decided to get in on the ICO craze. And they invited me to give a talk. And this was around the time when I was starting Amber. So it was 2017. And I got up on stage and everyone there, like I swear to God, there was people selling like, basically like stuff that you would never need a token for, like a toaster company, for example, had their own token. Like it was all like token, token, token. I got up on stage and I talked about how ICOs are the biggest scam uh, in history and that, uh, you know, the whole thing was going to end up blowing up in people's faces. And I remember the organizer, like, going white in the face, like, uh, in the back of the room thinking, this son of a bitch just cost uh, my clients millions of dollars. And when I, when, I, when I got off the stage, like, I literally, you could feel the room, like, it was split into people who loved me, which was people who were investors that were there looking to invest in stuff and, like, thinking this guy just saved me all this money. And then people there who were raising and they wanted to like chop my head off. And like afterwards, people came up to me saying, look, thank you. You were the only person of this entire three-day conference that made sense. Like I was sitting here listening to these people selling tokens and I couldn't get my head around like what is my ownership in it? And I was like, yeah, exactly. You own fucking nothing and you'll be happy. And um, and anyway, this, um, this organizer said, uh, you'll never be invited to another one of our conferences. Uh, please oh, no. never contact us again, right? So here's the funny part. Devastating. Devastating. But 12 months later, I get this sheepish email saying, hi, Alex, you know, I know I mentioned um, that we'd never invite you to another conference again, but look, you were actually right about the ICOs. All of it blew up. You know, we're not doing ICOs anymore. We had a massive amount of um, client base uh, requesting that you come and talk at this year's conference. And don't worry, there's no ICOs. This year's conference is about 
blockchain technology. <laughs> I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me, right? So I said, okay, I'll come. I'll give a talk on blockchain technology. And they're like, oh, would you really? Thank you so much. So I, I put this talk together, which they didn't know. Like I told them that, um, you know, the talk was going to be about the future of blockchain technology. And I, I get on stage and I have the first slide that says the future of blockchain technology. And then my next slide is blockchain is dead. The future is on lightning and Bitcoin. And I could see the same organizer. He was in the back of the room. He's just, his face went white again. He's like, this son of a bitch rugged me again. <laughs> and I gave this talk about how, you know, blockchain is like, you know, this stupid idea, blah, blah, blah. And I talked about, you know, private public blockchains and everything. And I basically got everyone sold on the idea of lightning. So this was like early 2018, really early days of lightning. I think it was, uh, you know, one of the first like good arguments uh, about Bitcoin lightning, etc. And I had so much content that I decided to turn it into a free PDF handout that we gave out to people that day. And we got really, 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 really good feedback from that. And I decided, okay, you know what, we should maybe make this something. So we just kind of like pulled the name out of our ass. We called it the Bitcoin Times and we turned it into like a really nice designed PDF. And that PDF is actually what got me, I think, on the Twitter stage. Like I put that out for free. Matt O'Dell, Marty Ben, Tour de Mista, like a bunch of Giacomo Zucca, like people like that picked it up. And, um, and you know, I was a nobody on Twitter. I had like three followers and like that kind of like boosted my profile for the first time. And yeah, after that, I decided, look, this is cool. We should, I should do this once a year. And I would gather up people to write. And the second edition was, um, Nick Carter before he lost his mind, uh, Haas McCook, uh, who else was in there? Breedlove, Gigi. There was like eight of us in that, uh, second edition. So that was like second edition I did. And my intention was always to print these. So we did that. The, the third edition was where I really like hit the map. That was Jeff Booth, Parker Lewis, Giacomo, Jimmy Song, Eric Kasten, and myself. That was 2020. It was kind of, we called it the Promethean edition, but it was written during, you know, Clown World, obviously. 2021 was Alan Farrington, Thomas Strolite, Peter Sanonji, a couple of people like that. Uh, 2021. And then last year, obviously, was the Austrian edition, which uh, you are a part of, Pierre Rashad. Conrad Graf, Rahim, Michael Goldstein, uh, and myself. And that was like looking at Bitcoin through an Austrian lens and looking at Austrian economics through a Bitcoin lens. So the idea now, what I want to do with it is I want to do 21 editions over 21 years with 2,100 copies of the collectible being printed and each one is numbered on the back. So I actually, yeah, okay. So people who can see the video, so this is, a copy of the Bitcoin Times, and they can see on the back here, every single one has uh, an edition number. So this is actually number one of 2100. So I have obviously, being the creator of this, I keep uh, uh, issue number one for myself. Um, but there is, um, the idea is that, yeah, this is once a year, and it's like quality over quantity. We're also going to do a um, paperback edition of these so that way people who can't afford the uh the collectible because the collectible is about ranges between 70 to 100 dollars. when i release them i release them in a sats price and that sats price is fixed forever so if the price of bitcoin goes up these things get more expensive if the price of bitcoin goes down they get cheaper which obviously we know what's going to happen in the long term so it's better to buy sooner than it is to buy later but the paperback itself will be uh amazon like standard paperback and it'll be this collection of essays in a nice six by nine booklet, um, which people will be able to get. 
So that's basically the the project itself. And yeah, this year, as I said, this year's edition is the energy edition. I've got Gideon Powell, I've got Marty Bent, Drew Armstrong, Andrew Myers, Harry Suddock. That's it. That's that's all the authors. Um, and we're writing about Bitcoin through the lens of energy, energy through uh, the lens of Bitcoin. And this year's um, yeah, the the design is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it's a very it's a much needed. Oh, Brian Gitt, sorry, is the other guy. Brian Gitt talking about nuclear in there. Um, it's a much needed uh, topic to discuss. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. This has been fascinating, and I wish you all the best on all of these projects. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me on. And uh, we'll have you back again when your models got uh, the right uh, answers on everything. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> give me give me three to six months to have the model ready. It'll be good, uh, and I think by that stage we'll have some fun. In fact, what we'll do, what I'm planning to do starting Q1 next year is, if the model is good enough, we're probably going to start doing some spaces with Satoshi, where if we're going to give the model its own voice and see if it can actually interact live with people. So by the time we're ready to do our next podcast, we'll bring Satoshi into the conversation as well. Excellent. Looking forward to hosting him. All right. Thank you, my friend. All right, take care.